Today's episode of Dungeon Crawlers Radio is brought to you by Gamers Inn, your one-stop location for all your gaming needs. Located in Lehigh City, Utah, their fun and friendly staff will be more than happy to answer any of your gaming needs. Just remember, Gamers Inn, it's where adventures begin. Broadcasting live from the DCR studio. Oh, yeah! The Geek Revolution starts here. Excellent! Get ready for the number one hit geek radio show out there. Well, it is impressive, isn't it? Because it's time for Dungeon Crawlers Radio. Alright everyone, welcome to another episode of Dungeon Crawlers where we're here with author Richard Baker to talk about his new novel, Valiant Dust, which is uh, you know, kind of a new military science fiction series that he's started, um, but without really going into detail, because it is out now, I'm going to let Richard uh, explain a little bit more about the book because it came from, from him and he knows more about it than I do. <laughs> well, uh, Valiant Dust is, uh, <clears throat> uh, basically it's, uh, in a lot of ways, it's the, uh, the basic setup of the universe is it's, uh, the age of colonialism, the scramble for Africa, the great power rivalries that kind of led up to, uh, World War One, uh, played out in space, uh, you know, in the 31st century, uh, with, uh, uh, planets and, 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 uh, stellar, uh, star nations kind of playing the role of, of colon, uh, colonies that uh, different great powers are fighting over. And um, the protagonist, uh, uh, Sikander North, is the gunnery officer on a cruiser of the Aquilin Commonwealth. And he and his shipmates are uh, called to the planet of Gadira, uh, where there is uh, a difficult uh, uh, local uprising in process that threatens to uh, overthrow the government of Gadira. And the great powers are kind of gathering around, trying to figure out uh, into whose lap uh, Gadira is about to fall. Uh, it's it's kind of very loosely based on the, uh, on the of all things, the second Moroccan crisis uh, of 1909. Uh, but I'm trying to obviously, you know, bring a new uh, military sci-fi spin to uh, to that, and and use it as a background for. Uh, you know, telling a good story about uh, uh, what it's like to be a naval officer uh, serving in uh, uh, a tense and confusing time. Nice. Uh, no, that's really cool. And, and I like how you've taken kind of a modern, well, I wouldn't say modern, uh, a historical <laughs> event. That's better. Uh, you know, that has happened, it, you know, in our world, and then kind of twisted it and changed it into this science fiction story up in space. I mean. That's just fantastic. Uh, and it's really fun when you can take an idea like that, something that we can read in history or we've experienced ourselves and then make a story of it that we can connect to because we can kind of – it makes it easier, at least in my mind, as a reader that we can connect with that. Yeah, I think it lends a certain air of uh, plausibility to it also because if it happened in the past, you know, it's not impossible that something like that could happen again in the future. 
Yeah. Uh, so, you know, they, uh, they say you should write what you know. Uh, I've always been uh, a, a big history buff. Uh, obviously, I'm, uh, you know, crazy for, uh, uh, you know, uh, naval history in particular. Uh, so um, this is a way that I can kind of draw on my, you know, my strengths and interests uh, as I'm, you know, working on developing a new universe and, 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 you know, creating uh, just the beginning of what hopefully is going to be a kind of a grand epic sweeping storyline uh, following a, a, once again, hopefully interesting character, uh, you know, through uh, many years in his career. Now, because you, you mentioned that you, you like naval warfare and stuff like that, how has that come into play here? Because now we're not really in the oceans, but we're using, you know, star cruisers or vessels uh, out in space. Did that come into play, how they maneuver and, and kind of fly through space? Uh, yeah, they, you know, it, it, uh, <clears throat> it, it really does. Uh, um a couple of the guys who are running a great uh, military sci-fi series right now actually have done a pretty good job of capturing uh, sort of like the feel of like the modern uh, missile age of naval combat. Um, so I wanted to kind of uh, think about a, a set of logical assumptions that would kind of change the tenor of, of uh, how uh, combat and conflict would work in my universe. And, uh, so in uh, in uh, Sikander's uh, universe, uh, battleships uh, and cruisers and things like that are are heavily armored. They uh, they they uh, carry essentially uh, great big rail guns that they call kinetic cannons. Uh, they're armed with uh, torpedoes uh, that uh, use uh, warp fields to kind of disappear from normal space so that they can actually survive to get to the target uh, before they reappear again. And the, the, the general feel is uh, uh, the battles in, in my universe uh, tend to feel a little bit more like the big gun encounters uh, like Jutland or Tsushima uh, or Manila Bay, you know, in that sort of age of steam and iron. Okay. Um, and some of the tactics that, you know, would be wor uh, would work on that, like uh, things like crossing the T um, or finding the right range to engage the enemy are tactics that would also work in, in uh, Sikander Norse universe. Um, so, so yeah, I was definitely looking for a place where I could, you know, draw some inspiration from, from a sort of real time and era in uh, naval combat and, and, and see if I could, uh, you know, create a setting where some of that stuff would kind of still stay true. Nice. Now with kind of the, the futuristic technology, did you find it was a little bit more, you, well, let me step back. Did you find that you needed to explain more and how like the rail guns and this futuristic technology worked or did you just go with the assumption that the reader would just hey i've seen stuff like this on star wars or other sci-fi books and just go with it no i definitely uh, uh you know take a few spots to you know you know hopefully provide at least a basic explanation for what's going on it's uh <laughs> you know it, it's what we writers sometimes refer to as a uh as a uh, expository lump, meaning it's a hunk of exposition or, you know, basically dropping out of the narrative to explain something that's going on. Yeah. Uh, and so you have to be careful about how you do that because obviously a ton of that is, is a wall of text for the, the reader to get through. But there are occasions where, you know, I feel as a writer, it's, it's a little bit justified to step back and say, okay, here's what you really need to know about, you know, how this stuff works because you'll understand, uh, 
now the ramifications uh, of of you know how this is going to influence the story and the characters and their decisions. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, obviously, I I try not to beat you uh, the reader over the head with it, and you know, it, you know, but it, it's one of those uh, you know your mileage may vary things, right? Some people hit that stuff and they love getting that information. You know, some people hit that stuff and they 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 ah oh, you know I. I I got to, you know, chug through a paragraph of this, you know, and they don't like it. So what can, yeah, yeah I, I are on the side of, of trying to, you know, pick a couple of spots and say, all right, here, I'm just going to explain a little bit about what's going on. And, you know, as long as I don't do it too much or I don't bury it all in the same chapter or make a great big wall out of it, then I think my reader will forgive me the occasional paragraph that goes into some explanation and, and, and carry on with me as I, you know, kind of pick things up again. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I agree with you. It's it's kind of that well balance, that, that balance that you have to ride where it's like, okay, I need to give them this information so they can kind of understand how things are happening. But at the same time, if I give too much, then, you know, their eyes kind of gloss over and I may lose them. So, exactly. Uh, yeah. So with the events happening in this book, you know, and we already know it's a series. How many books are we looking at? Is it three, five? I mean, uh, what? Well, uh, right now, I'm uh, I'm currently contracted for uh, three books uh, okay. with with Tor. Um, I've uh, I, you know, obviously Valiant Dust is out. Um, I've finished the second book already. Um, that's in the process of editing. Uh, that book's called Restless Light. Uh, pardon me, Restless Lightnings. <laughs> And uh, that'll be out uh, in the fall. Uh, and the third book, uh, I'm kind of just starting to work on now. But uh, realistically, with this character in this universe, I think there's a whole bunch more stories to tell. So yeah, um, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that uh, uh, you know uh, Tor and I will get together and talk uh, sometime uh, in the not too distant future, and we'll we'll figure out a way to you know bring a few more uh, Sikandor stories out. Nice. Well, trilogies are always fun. Uh, at least in my mind, it's some. It's easy. It's easy to jump into. You know, there's three books that you have a, a good story uh, to jump on. But with the, this type of universe, like you said, you could have another trilogy set or another one. Um, you know, kind of like what Bob Salvatore has done with his Dark Elf books, where he kicks out three and those do really well. He kicks out another trilogy, and but it's a huge, still overall story arc within that same universe and. I mean that would be fantastic if this could work yeah. out that well that way as well. Yeah, I, I would love to be as successful as Bob is too. You know, that's <laughs> <laughs> that's that's there's definitely some truth there. But uh, yeah, I know the uh, the other thing is by uh, nature of the you know of the era that I'm trying to sort of capture the mood and feel of in this this book, uh, the stories are also fairly episodic too, right? I mean, there's yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I hate to call it like the crisis of the week, but I mean that's kind of the the way that things are developing that, that, you know, book two, uh, yeah, I know is going to, uh, put Sikander in a totally different corner of the galaxy dealing with a totally different situation. Um, some characters, uh, carry forth from book to book. Uh, other characters, uh, will, uh, disappear from the story for a bit and then might come back in a book or two later, you know, as, uh, you know, as you get like naval uh, assignments, like in the military, right. Sometimes you mm -hmm. are, uh, with people that you've served with before, it's like, oh, hey, yeah, you know, uh, six years ago, you and I were back on, you know, this post here, that post there. We served together on this ship. And then, you know, I was assigned over here. You were assigned over there. We didn't see each other for a while. And then we find ourselves back in the same the same spot again a few years later. 
that's sort of the way the uh, you know the some of the secondary or supporting characters are going to be kind of brought in and and uh, rotate out as um as I'm moving forward. Yeah. No, I mean this that's really really fantastic, and I like the idea of kind of the episodic uh, issue of the week type thing because uh, 24 was really popular with viewers because of that that dynamic. I mean, yes, it was still within a 24-hour period, but every week it was a new issue or some something came up that Jack Bauer had to to overcome, and, <laughs> you know. And a lot of our TV series uh, are built up that same way. Uh, whether it's the Flash or CSI or whatever, it's kind of that. Oh, what's the new thing this week that we have to go through with that overarching storyline that's still going on? So, um, I, I think people will jump in on this and just love it. And I'm a huge sci-fi fan. I love that that era, that feel, the the ships, future technology, and that. But you get a good story in there, and it's just fantastic. Oh, thanks. I'm, uh, <laughs> obviously, I like that stuff too. I wouldn't have written this book, right? I mean, yeah. I, this book is kind of the book that that came about when uh, I was with uh, obviously, uh, you know, TSR and Wizards of the Coast, working as a game designer for many, many years. And while working at Wizards, I was under a a fairly strict non compete agreement, right? Meaning yeah. that I, you know, I, I was limited in what I was allowed to to write, uh, you know, on my off time. Uh, and so, you know, that worked out, that worked out okay for me. All right, everyone, we just wanted to take a moment to talk about Paragon City Games and their awesome Black Friday deals. They have everything you can imagine. They've got, uh, great sales on board games, card games, miniature reductions. <laughs> miniature. They're yeah. not very miniature in their reductions. Yeah. And, of course, uh... They've got so many really good deals going on. Card sleeves. Uh, card, card sleeves. sleeves. <laughs> you name it, they've got it. I don't it's... know what that means. Card protectors. Yeah. Okay. So no. that people don't get their greasy fingers all over your, your precious cards, especially that one that's worth $15, and you're like, this one card's worth 15 bucks. I don't want you touching it. You put it in the card sleeve, suddenly you feel fine with them playing with it. I'm looking at you, Wes. It's... it's... Ooh, I want to glare at Wes. It's, it's like a, it's it's like a bulletproof vest for your cards. Oh. Yeah. But anyways... They got a new website coming up online. You'll be able to shop on their website for any of these amazing products. And not only that, they're going to have un- more amazing deals coming to you even after Black Friday for Christmas. So come into Paragon City Games, give them a call, check them out online any way you can to find out these deals because, as they say, this is where heroes come to play. Okay, so my question is. With you working with TSR uh, and Wizards of the Coast, and you know working with Dungeons and Dragons and Forgotten Realms, that's kind of a fantasy-based setting. With working with elves and drow and dragons and stuff like that, and magic was it a far leap to go from that to the science fiction setting? Because I mean, they all I mean, they exist in the same realm, but they're almost polar opposites in in a way. I would think. Uh, you know, it actually wasn't. Uh, wasn't that hard for me simply because, uh, you know, I've been a lifelong fan of sci-fi. Okay. I've, I've read, uh, you know, I, I cut my teeth as a, as a reader back, you know, when, you know, gosh, I was, uh, you know, nine, well, like 10, 11, 12 years old. Uh, it's kind of when I really discovered fantasy and sci-fi. And, and the funny story about that is, uh, the library in my hometown 
you know, had this awesomely antiquated, uh, sci, you know, uh, uh, sci-fi spinner rack of these little paperbacks. So the stuff that I kind of first started reading when I really got into sci-fi to begin with was a, a lot of golden age sci-fi, you know, from stuff from the 40s, things like uh, uh, Robert Heinlein's uh, uh, Juvenile SF and uh, Doc Smith's Lensman stories, right? And, uh, you know, uh, old Ray Bradbury and, and, mm-hmm. and Asimov stuff. So I really kind of came in, you know, uh, even though I was doing this reading, you know, gosh, you know, like 1980 or so. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I kind of started off on the stories of the 40s and the 50s and because uh, that's what they had in the library. Um, and then obviously, I, uh, even like all the years I was working on uh, D&D and, and uh, Forgotten Realms, uh, the thing I kind of use as my sort of, you know, for fun reading in the evening, the thing that was always sitting on my on my bedstand, you know, the, the, the nightstand by my bed was uh, usually sci-fi of some sort. Yeah. Um, yeah, the... Uh, the trickier part, I think, is uh, if you're trying to maintain anything like a nod towards hard science fiction, as opposed to, uh, you know, just, you know, kind of, you know, more lighthearted, less serious space opera. Uh, and that that's a little bit tougher to, to really wrap your head around, because if you, you know, if you really want to pay attention to hard sci-fi, you're going to be making decisions like, well, you know, nobody can, uh, nobody can travel faster than light, because as far as we know, you really can't do that. <laughs> yeah. You know? And and here's all these considerations about, you know, if you were to actually point a particle beam in someone's direction and, and fire it at them. Uh, yeah. You know, you'd probably just kill everybody around you with radiation. Right. That's yeah, that's that's not real fun. Right. You know, it's kind of not what we're, what we're in for. So uh, there's definitely some places where, you know, I try to observe, uh, you know, the you know, the the real world implications of the technology. And there's other places where I, you know, I allow myself to have you know, faster than light travel because, you know, it's, you know, it, it's kind of fun and it helps portray the, uh, the universe that I want to portray. Yeah. Well, I, we also have to contend with, you know, how in our brain, the only way to have artificial gravity is to have a ship that rotates the whole time. And, you know, what kind of complications does that bring into play and stuff like that? So uh, I, I, I think the kind of the softer, science fiction is always easier at least for a a writer and for a reader because then you don't have to kind of get everything wrapped up in your head on how things work and how things should work or shouldn't work and we should just be having fun enjoying the ride (laughs) and the story that's unfolding before us yeah i i think it's i think it's possible to tell great stories both ways you know so i'm i'm happy to i'm happy to to lean one way and in some aspects, and lean a different way in the others. Okay. So, what is different about the hero of your story? What is unique about him that maybe we haven't seen before? Well, the uh, the interesting thing about uh, uh, Sikander is uh, that um, he is uh, from a a world that is essentially uh, a, a a colonial possession. Uh, belonging to a, a great power. He serves, uh, he is a, a Kashmiri, uh, meaning he's from the system of Kashmir, uh, and he is serving in the, the Star Navy of the Commonwealth of Aquila, uh, which is the great power that essentially uh, conquered Kashmir 100 years ago and added it uh, to its, its, its uh, you know, uh, colonial empire. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, Sikander's in the interesting position of, of 
kind of serving in the Navy of the country that, that conquered his country, if you want to think of it, about it that way. Okay. Um, and that means that, uh, you know, first of all, uh, he is, uh, faces a fair amount of kind of institutional uh, uh, distrust and, and cultural uh, misgivings, if you will, on the part of the Aquilan uh, uh, shipmates that he has. Uh, most of them are are fine, you know, are, are you know not particularly uh, elitist or racist in any way, uh, and are you know happy to judge a person by, you know, how well he does his job. Um, others uh, do carry some real baggage about the idea that well, they just can't believe that somebody from Kashmir would have the the technical proficiency uh, to to you know be you know, to actually carry a commission in in, in Aquila's navy. Or others think that a person from Kashmir, uh, well, Kashmir is a, a kind of backwards and superstitious planet, right? Because, gosh, they actually still have religions there. Um, and, you know, naturally, you know, doesn't think that kind of speaks well of somebody's uh, suitability for uh, for service. Uh, Sikander is, uh, and when I realized that, that, you know, Sikander was dealing with this, the, the really kind of interesting question to me became, okay, so why would you you know, serve, uh, in the, in the armed forces of, of the, the country that was kind of, in, you know, Aquila is a reasonably benevolent, uh, colonial empire, but, uh, even so that, you know, colonial empires, even the, the, the good ones aren't that great. Uh, and Sikander is, uh, is, is, you know, making a hard choice about serving in this Navy. And the answer is, uh, because, uh, as it turns out, yeah, he's uh, the, you know, he's uh, the 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 fourth son uh, in a in a large family of of aristocrats, and they, uh, Kashmiri aristocrats, they have uh, the means to 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 send him off world. And when you think about it, what Kashmir is desperately trying to do is they're trying to catch up, right? They need to learn, learn, learn everything they can about the technology, uh, and uh, the cultural outlook and the uh, the attitudes and the direction that Aquila is going. Uh, so Sikander, in, in a lot of ways, is yeah, he's 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 uh, you know off world because it, it suits his family's purposes to you know have somebody from the family be off world. Yeah, uh, but he's also there because uh, in the long run, Kashmir knows it's not going to be under Aquila's thumb you know forever. And it's going to be people like Sikander who actually go out there and and accept uh, and endure a little bit of, uh, you know, ostracism in some ways in order to learn from uh, a, a country that, that has a nation that's got something to teach their world, even if it's not necessarily going to be a pleasant or easy lesson to learn. Nice. I like that. Uh, oh, it's... Yeah. A, <laughs> It's a, it's a, it's actually, a, it's a, it's a really difficult line to walk, uh, because, uh, obviously, you know, our own real world, there's, there's lots of legacy of, of, of colonialism that's very negative, and there's lots of reasons to, to look at this and say, okay, is this a, you know, is this in bounds to, to write about this stuff? And yeah. so I, I really, you know, had to take a step back and, and approach this with care. My, my initial uh, take on the care character was uh i was like okay hey you know i'm i'm a i'm a caucasian um i'm an american i i i i go to church at the methodist church you know if i tried to 
write my character as the one who was in the world, you know, my, my own viewpoint is the one who was in that world being kind of uh, under the dominion of somebody else. All of a sudden we'd be looking at, okay, here's a, the white male Christian, you know, up against the, <laughs> you know, the atheists yeah. and the, uh, that, that would not work. Right. I had yeah. to, I just, I, I could not tell that story and, and, and it would be a very different and ugly story if I tried to set it up that way. Yeah. So well, I tried to, you know, yeah. Well, I like the fact that there's conflict. I mean, you ha- you've already set up conflict, not only emotionally, but physical and, you know, uh, socially, uh, social challenges that are all built in because of this. And that makes for not only a believable character, but a really fun experience because he's going about doing the daily things and he's feeling this i mean we all do i mean there's some point in our lives where we felt external pressures pushing us pressuring us to do things or not to do things and it just adds more realism to a character as well as to a story so i i love that type of stuff when it when it's in my stories yeah there's a ultimately what it boils down to is that sikander lives in a a pretty complicated universe yeah and it's a universe where where uh, not everything is is painted in in right and wrong and black and white, a lot of times there's a there's a fair bit of gray and a fair bit of uh, kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't uh, in the in the setting, and and I'm hoping that I can kind of uh, you know keep that uh, keep that theme going you know through the course of these stories that that you know wow it's a uh, you know. Sometimes the, the figuring out what the right decisions are, or or figuring out which side is is the good side, is is not always going to be so easy. Yeah. Now, what was the catalyst that made you become a writer? I mean, because there's always some point where a writer just decides I'm going for it. But what was that catalyst? Because it's not something that's really easy or or rewarding. Very quickly. I mean, sometimes you spend months to years working on that first book or two or three or four until you finally get one out. And then it takes a while before you actually start getting people acknowledging that and so forth. So what was the catalyst that made you decide to, to do that? You know, I, I think I kind of always had the ambition to uh, to write. You know, I, I mentioned earlier about the idea of being a you know ten eleven year old kid and really discovering you know sci fi and mm-hmm. you know reading the, the Hobbit for the first time and and uh, discovering uh, uh, like you know old first edition D and D you know kind of almost around the same time. And so, I mean, I certainly I think had an aspiration from falling in love with the Lord of the Rings to say, man, I want to I want to build worlds, right? I want to. I want to tell stories. I want to imagine, you know, really, you know, great places uh, uh, with and and you know, terrible enemies and and bold heroes and do something with that. Uh, so through, you know, through high school and, and college, I wouldn't say that I I wrote a lot. I mean, as every now and then I fiddle around with an attempt to write a short story or or you know, build a uh, an interesting D and D adventure. Um, after I uh, graduated from college and I was uh, serving, uh, you know, serving in the Navy, uh, I, I made the process of writing a uh, sort of my my hobby. I, I, I had a, you know, when I when I was off the ship, when I was off duty, uh, I kind of you know, made it. The, it's like, OK, I, I said, I want to do this. I want to try and do this. And I over the course of about a year, year and a half, I 
uh, I banged out a 200,000 word monster of a manuscript, uh, a great big fantasy epic, um, which as it turns out, you know, I, I never managed to sell. <laughs> it probably, you know, wasn't, wasn't all that great. Um, I mean, I think there's parts of it that were pretty good, but you know, still by and large, it, it probably, it, it didn't sell and it probably shouldn't have sold. But what it did do is it, it taught me that I can do it. Yeah. You know, there's a real power in starting something and, and getting, uh, you know, after months and months, getting, getting to type the, the, the end, you know, at the end of the process and say, hey, I finished the first draft. I wrote something from, from start to finish, and now I know I can do it. Um, and I think that with, with that experience and understanding that, okay, you know, maybe that first attempt is not perfect, but now you know something about what it takes to do this, and now you know something about how it's done. Um I was able to parlay that. Uh, uh, I think it helped me uh, get that first job at TSR. Uh, after I finished up with my active duty, I, I think uh, at TSR, it helped me uh, go to the book department at TSR and say, hey, I, you know, obviously, I, I, love writing the, I love writing the D&D stuff. That's fine. But I'd, I'd also like to write story, novels. You know, can, what, what's it take? To, you know, what do I have to do to, to you know, get signed up to, uh, to take a whack at a, at a Forgotten Realms novel? And um <clears throat> from there you know it's it's kind of that that's where you know that that's how i wound up uh i want to say backing into it but it was uh you know certainly not the usual route i suppose yeah i mean it's a little bit of luck a little bit of work and a lot of imagination i guess when it comes to to writing because yeah, I know there are a lot of people out there that have written for years and they still have yet to have something published, but uh, it's kind of the beauty of the publishing industry now. It's kind of changed where you can get your book out there now without having to worry about going through a, a publisher or anything like that. But Yeah, it, it, it is tough. I mean, obviously, uh, it's a, it's a, there's, a, there's a really rough signal-to-noise ratio uh, in, in that world. But every now and then, you know, I, people come... Uh, people pop out of that and yeah. uh, and and wind up doing quite well. I want to uh, I want to believe that the uh, the guy who wrote The Martian, for example, uh, originally self published. I I think that's correct. There's uh, uh, the guy who wrote the book uh, Wool. I think is another one. Yeah. Um, I mean, so some of these guys are out there, kind of uh, getting themselves discovered uh, through that medium. But well, I, but yeah, I, I, yeah, yeah. I mean, even Larry Correa, his first book, Monster Hunter International, it was self-published at first, and then Bane came back and picked it up, and now the entire series is out there, and he's very well known for that series, <laughs> and um, you know, or vice versa. You have people like Brandon Sanderson who struggled with their first couple books that came out, Lightning struck, and then now look at him. Yeah. Um, so I mean, it's it's a fun process. What I just think it's fantastic when anyone can say, I have a book, it's done, it's out there for readers to read, whether millions are coming, flocking to it to read, or even one or two. It's still a huge accomplishment to have finished a book, like you said, and it's even better that someone else is reading it. Yeah, you know, it's... uh... You know, there, there's a lot of people out there who, who sort of tell themselves, yeah, I'd like to be a writer. And there's some people who kind of fiddle with it off and on. And and ultimately what it comes down to is, uh, you know, the the guy who's a writer is the guy who actually finishes it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's a, 
it, it's kind of a, a harsh truth about the business, I think. Yeah. Well, and that's one thing that I think a lot of people overlook and why a lot of people don't do it is there's all this upfront work. You know, most you get a job, you go, you work for a week or two, you get a paycheck. Uh, if you're a writer, you work for quite some time turn in your manuscript hope someone takes it they decide they want it they publish it you go through all the editing process and then the book comes out and then you hope it sells and then maybe you get a paycheck uh you know it's it's this weird dynamic um and it's it's a lot of work even after the book comes out you still got to promote it you still got to find your audience and and so on and so forth so it's not just hey my book's out i'm gonna now make a you know a bucket full of money uh it it trickles in <laughs> oh yeah yeah i mean it's it's a in a lot of ways right i mean i it, you know valiant dust exists because i spent gosh like you know five six months in 2015 you know writing it i yeah. didn't see any money in 2015 for that <laughs> right that was a yeah. right that was a you know something i was doing instead of making money in 2015 was working on the thing that uh, you know, hey, it, if all goes well, I, I you know, get to see a, a royalty check for and, uh, you know, end of January, <laughs> you know, 30, 30 days after the quarter in which it goes on sale. That's pretty typical. Yeah. I mean, I did get a, a, a you know, a modest advance on it, but, uh, you know, but by and large, right. I mean, this, uh, this is a business where you, uh, you have to kind of work on faith a little bit and say, you know, if I, if I write well, if I tell them the best stories I can, then. And I'm working with, uh, and I'm lucky enough to kind of fall in with a good agent and a good publisher. I just have to kind of trust that, you know, I'm, I'm going to make out all right in the end. Yeah. Well, and, you know, plus you have a following from the years of being at TSR and, and Wizard, so that, that always helps. Um, but it is. I mean, you definitely, you put in all this work years ago hoping to get something next year. Yeah. You know, in 2018, <laughs> almost three years later. Yep. Um, which, which again, you're doing it because you love doing it. You love being a storyteller. It's it's definitely a work of love, but I don't think a lot of people realize how much of unpaid time goes into it before that book is in their hands. Yeah, I mean, you you know there, uh, you do need to have a a, a fair bit of of luck, uh, and also yeah. Uh, you know, some real talent to, to be someone who gets to do it, you know, do this kind of full time and exclusively, right? Most, yeah. you know, the vast majority of folks out there writing are, are folks who have a day job of some sort or another. Yes. You know, it's. So what would be something, um, just because we're almost out of time, what would sure. be something that you would suggest or would cheer on a, a, an individual that is thinking about writing what would be like the top thing that you would tell them to do? Um, you know, it's kind of funny. I answered a question like this once at a, at a panel. I got some dirty looks from the other, <laughs> the other panelists. Uh, my answer would be if you, if you can cheat. Okay. Right. If, if you know somebody, you know, if somebody's cousin's uh, roommate is, you know, works somewhere, right. If, uh, you know, if you have any kind of in, um, you know, Gosh, make use of it, um, because uh, ultimately, right? I mean, um, you know, obviously, publishers buy manuscripts, but they also buy authors. Yeah. When you think about it, right? They have to have a sense that that they know what somebody's about, and they know what uh, what they're likely to 
uh, to turn out, right? So, I mean, uh, you, you kind of need to, uh, you know, to, to rise above the, the, the slush pile. Yeah, it's, you know, there's, you know, there's probably some, some pretty good stories uh, that are sitting in, in, in slush piles right now that aren't going to get published because, you know, the, the amount of, uh, the, the amount of manuscripts that, that come in into this business, uh, is pretty high and the amount that actually get picked out and, and, and published is, is really not that high. Yeah. So, I mean, I think things like, um, uh, conventions, writer workshops, um, you know, getting a chance to, uh, to meet folks and, and make a, make a personal connection if you, if you can, I think that's probably about the best way you can really kind of put your thumb on the scale and, and, and cheat it a little bit. I mean, but obviously, you know, write a great story, (laughs) write the best story you can. That's first and foremost. But then after that, you know, I think it's a little bit of, of trying to knock on doors and, and, and get people to know who you are. No, I I like that. And I do have to agree uh, with the, the statement that publishers are buying authors in a way because even though the book is done it's still up to the author to go out there and talk about it help promote it because it's not all on the publisher's end and if you can't connect with your audience as an author it just seems like the book kind of doesn't go anywhere Um, because I can't count the number of times I have wanted to go meet the authors um, of my favorite books, you know, growing up in that. It was, that was such an exciting thrill to be able to meet these story makers uh, that had woven this story that I loved so much. And the authors that were personable and would connect with me and speak with me, man, I, I, I own every one of their books. The authors that didn't <laughs> really do that, that just kind of, I, and signed the book and then shipped it and then I was off. It just wasn't the same, you know, and the desire to read the next book just wasn't as strong as, oh man, I burned through that book in two days. He signed it. It was awesome. And now I got to wait a whole year for another (laughs) one. Yeah. So, yeah, I certainly, I mean, I I certainly try to approach where I'm I'm at with a little bit of humility. I mean, I've had the good fortune to uh, to be able to enjoy, uh, you know, in a lot of ways, two different careers that, that many people have aspirations to, to be part of, yeah. uh, between my, my history as a, you know, my career as a game designer and my career, uh, as a, as a writer of fantasy stories and, and sci-fi stories. And, uh, and many, many people look at that and say, that's gotta be the coolest job ever. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm usually pretty aware of that when I'm, when I'm meeting folks and saying, Hey, you know, awesome. You like what I do? That's amazing. I'm, I'm glad you're here, right? Yeah. Because I wouldn't have a chance to do it if, if, you know, if it wasn't for folks who, who liked what I did. Yeah. Well, since we're, we're, we're at time, we need to wrap up. Where can our listeners find this book? Uh, is it available on ebook and audiobook as well? And where can they find you to, you know, whether it's conventions or online so they can follow and get more information? Um, awesome. Um, uh, Valiant Dust uh, is available in uh, uh, bookstores kind of all over. Uh, it, it's definitely in uh, uh, Barnes and Noble. Um, uh, many of the the kind of uh, bigger, uh, uh, you know, local or regional bookstores, um, places like a, a Powell's Book or Books or like a um, 
you know, the, the good local bookstores that have a decent uh, sci-fi fantasy uh, collection should, should be carrying it. And, yeah. and I would say I'd always encourage people, hey, you know, support your local bookstore if you can, right? I mean, they, that's a tough business to be in. And, and you know, if you, if you can go down to the corner and pick it up, I think it's fantastic. Um, if those uh, venues aren't close by you, um, you can find it on Amazon. You can find it. Uh, it is available right now uh, in both uh, uh, Nook and Kindle ebook formats. Um, there is an audiobook uh, version that's available right now, which, by the way, is is read by just an amazing voice actor. Uh, a fellow by the name of Steve West did the narration, and, and he's fantastic. Nice. <laughs> I, I love the way the audiobook sounds. It's 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 great. Um, and as far as uh, a little more information on me and what I'm doing, um, I have a website, uh, which is um, uh, richardbakerauthor.com. And uh, that's a, you know, basically a little, uh, you know, summary of, uh, uh, I, I do post, a, you know, routine, you know, I'm trying to be good about posting regular updates there as far as uh, what I'm working on and, and cool things about, about my stories. Um, I am going to be appearing at, uh, Liberty Bay books in, uh, in Bremerton, speak of the devil, nice. uh, actually on, uh, November 25th. And, uh, I think I'm going to be a panelist at, uh, Emerald city comic con. Um, Next tour March. is, uh, uh, yeah, tour is, tour is arranging, uh, uh, you know, setting up some panels for, uh, writers in the Seattle area for, uh, for Emerald city. And, uh, I've, they've asked me to be there and. Turns out that's kind of in my backyard, and 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 gosh, my kids are super enthused to go. Nice. <laughs> so yeah, um, I know I'll be there uh, at Emerald City Comic Con, and I think uh, the rest of us will probably be up there as well. Uh, it's just a really fun con uh, to go to. I was there last year and really enjoyed it, and they do a great job. So maybe we'll we'll bump into you and see you and say hi. Please do. I'd love to actually uh, you know shake your hand and and meet folks face to face. Yeah. Well, everyone. Go out, grab your copy of Valiant Dust. It's a fantastic sci-fi uh, adventure that you will love. Uh, definitely has our approval on it. And uh, whether you pick up the ebook, the physical book, or the audio book, it's going to be great. And uh, I just want to say thank you for coming on the show. Hey, it's been my pleasure to be here. Thanks so, for having me. Everyone, with that said, we're out of here, and we'll catch you next time. You're listening to Dungeon Crawlers Radio. Please subscribe and follow them on Facebook or Twitter, precious. No, we're even promoting these filthy idiots. Who doesn't like them? Who doesn't like anyone? They're friends, precious. They're friends. No, shut up. Please subscribe.